Awesome. Well, thank you, Tim Skelly, for leading us in prayer. And thank all of you for just being a part of this project uh, with us, uh, that it is a church activity, not just a team activity. And I really love days like today where I get to explain what the church is doing and why we're doing it. You know, I think being able to talk about the deeper motivations of what a church does is really helpful and really important for church life and just for being a Christian and part of the church. And that kind of leads us into today's study of the passage we're looking at today in the book of Zechariah, as we've been studying Zechariah all summer. If you're using the Bibles we have at the back welcome table, which you can keep if you don't have your own, we're going to be on page 648, uh, or you can find the verses in the app, or if you brought your own Bible, we'll be in Zechariah 7. Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament, which is a little helpful when you're trying to find it. And over the last six weeks, we've studied six chapters of visions that God has given to the prophet Zechariah, trying to encourage the people of Israel to start to rebuild the temple that was burnt down when 70 years ago they were taken into exile. And the visions are about that and the coming Messiah. But here today, we get to chapter 7, which is the next section of the book. Okay, It is two years later after those visions, and the people have gotten back to work rebuilding the temple. And we're going to see today some Jewish leaders come from a town down the road called Bethel. They come down to Jerusalem to ask Zechariah a very important question. And that's going to be where we start reading in Zechariah 7 verse 1. It says this, In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. Pause right there for one second. So historically, that would place us on Wednesday, December 4th, the year 518 B.C. So this is a very, it's very detailed in placing it as a historical event, which is just incredible. Keep going, verse 2. It says, The people of Bethel had sent Sherazar and Regamelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Okay, pause there. So this fast that they're talking about was started 70 years ago to commemorate the destruction of the original temple when they were taken into exile by Babylon, 70 years prior to this. And it's really important for us to remember when we're reading scripture, especially the Old Testament, that we never downplay how absolutely horrific and terrible and violent the fall of Jerusalem was. It was absolutely terrible warfare. They would destroy the whole city. They would circle the army around it and starve everyone out. There's reports of cannibalism and people being thrown off of the city walls and people were burned to death. And it was just absolutely horrific. Exile was not moving out of town down the road for a little while. It was entirely earth shattering. They were violently turned upside down. And for those that did survive the wars, everything from their physical lives to their understanding of their relationship with God and the promised land was just in shambles. Psalm 137 really captures the devastation that they felt and the sorrow that they felt uh, when they lost what they previously had. It says this in Psalm 137. It says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem. There on the poplar trees we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of those songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them upon the rocks. 
And you can see how devastated they were because of what happened in Jerusalem when it fell. It was utterly violent. We should never downplay how pivotal that was in their, in their minds, in their hearts, and in their lives. And so, just as their lives were violently destroyed by that, they were attached to it in their hearts. And ever since then, on a certain day in the fifth month of the year, which is when the temple was destroyed during the fifth month, they would mourn that destruction and they would fast. They wouldn't eat. But now, the temple's being rebuilt. So they want to know, well, should we keep doing this ritual, this, this tradition that we've had for so long? And they come to ask God that. And God answers their questions in several steps over the next two chapters. But we're just going to look at what we get in chapter 7 today, and then next week we'll get to chapter 8. And God, of course, does not answer with a simple yes or no to this one ritual, because he always looks deeper to the heart of the matter. Scripture is very clear, and it says that God doesn't look at the outward appearances like we do. He looks on the heart. He searches the heart. He says he tests the heart. He weighs the heart. And that's because the spiritual value of our outward Christian life is largely determined by our heart's motivation in it. And their problem this day was not as simple as one fast. You see, for 70 years, they were completely identified by the fact that they had been exiled. That was their whole identity at that point. And it defined them so much that they didn't have just one fast. They had four fasts on four different months of the year. Each one commemorating a different part of the fall of Jerusalem, a different event along the way. We see two of them mentioned in chapter 8 and all four of them mentioned. Oh, I'm sorry, two in chapter 7 and all four mentioned in chapter 8. So God here looks deeper. He doesn't just address this one fast they ask about. He looks deeper to the heart of the matter, and he addresses the condition of their hearts. And as he does that, we're going to see that there were three major issues with how they were fasting. So we'll pick up in verse 4, where it says this. It says, Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. That's Zechariah talking. He says, Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh months, for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous? And the Negev, that's the desert, and the western foothills were settled? Pause right there. Okay, so here we see the first issue with their fasting, and that's that it was self-prescribed. They chose to do it themselves, and yet they treated it as if it was ordained by God. Now you notice in this passage, nowhere does God say, no, stop fasting, it's not good, you shouldn't fast. He doesn't say that. Fasting actually can be a really great practice if you ever do it, but God never told them to do this fast. And now it has become a tradition, it's become a part of their uh, their historical identity during that time, and they start to treat it as if God commanded it. So they come to ask him if they should stop. And he's saying, well, I didn't tell you to do it in the first place. It's a really good question for us to ask. It's a question of how should we handle Christian traditions, Christian practices, or habits that are really good, maybe, but that aren't necessarily scripturally commanded. And we have many of those. Maybe you fast from time to time, just like these people do. Or maybe your tradition every morning is you have a quiet time with the Lord. Right? Every morning, that's what you do. Or maybe you pray before meals. It doesn't matter if you're at home with your family or you're in line at the state fair. We are praying before we eat. 
right? Those are all really good things. But none of them are commanded for scripture or for Christians in Scripture. You won't find those things commanded. But they are really good things. And we see good examples of them in the New Testament uh, that we should follow. Or even another good example is Christmas. You know, look at Christmas. We treat Christmas like it is a high holy day in Scripture. We get mad at Starbucks when they say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. But Christmas as a celebration is not in Scripture at all. You just don't find it there. It's purely traditional. It is purely self-prescribed. Now, don't get me wrong. Traditions are not necessarily bad. I love Christmas. Keep doing Christmas. Okay, don't cancel Christmas. They can be super great. Traditions and habits are super beneficial and helpful for your faith. But the issue comes when we treat our traditions as divinely commanded and we see merit in the action itself instead of only as a means of deepening our relationship with the Lord. We see an example of this in the New Testament, actually, uh, when Jesus, in Mark 7, uh, is there, and the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they ask Jesus why him and his disciples don't do this ceremonial hand cleaning, where they clean their hands before each meal. And Jesus responds to them by quoting the book of Isaiah. He says this, he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. For it's, their, it's for their own vanity, he's saying. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. He tells them, basically, in this, that it's not just what you do on the outside that matters, but it's what's your motivation on the inside for why you're doing those things that really does matter. He goes on later in the same passage. He says, for it is from within out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, these are all outside of your body things, right? They're all outside things. Greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these things come from inside a person and defile a person. That's where it all starts. So it's imperative that when we have various Christian practices or habits or traditions, that we're constantly examining why we are doing those things, even if they are typically good things. Are we doing this out of envy? Are we doing it out of arrogance or pride or tradition or greed? And if so, then we should let those things go and maybe not do those things for a time. You know, last year I was studying fasting actually for a good while, and I learned that the great John Wesley, uh, he wouldn't actually ordain any pastors in his churches, which were really good churches at the time. He wouldn't ordain them unless they fasted twice a week, every week, regularly, without fail. And when I first heard that, I thought, wow, you can do that and not die. I didn't know that. So, And I wanted to be like Don Wesley, right? I mean, what a great example of a man of God. And so I began to focus on growing my spiritual life, my Christian life, through the practice of fasting twice a week. So I wouldn't eat on Wednesday or Friday, and I would just pray instead when I felt hungry. And I was quite disciplined about it for maybe six months or so. And I grew a lot during that time, and, and it was really great for deepening my understanding of the Lord and my, my utter dependence and immediate dependence on Him for everything. But at some point, it changed. And I realized that at some point, I, it changed from being a way of deepening my understanding and my relationship with the Lord, and said I was doing it to feel spiritual. 
and I was doing it because I said I would do it. And I was doing it because, well, it was Wednesday, and this is what I do on Wednesday. And it was Friday, and I do this on Friday. And I told some friends about it, and I, you know, I wanted to impress them and, and not let them down. And, and I wanted to be like John Wesley, right? And I want to follow his example. And so at some point, it turned fasting into the goal instead of just as a means to worship God. And so I had to stop fasting as a means to worship God. It's not that fasting was bad for me or for the Israelites for those 70 years, that it was good or bad, but why we were fasting meant everything. There's another example that comes to mind for me, um, and maybe you can relate to this, is that we have, uh, we have little kids, and sometimes we ask them if they want to pray at dinner or, or at bedtime, and we say, okay, you can pray. And uh, sometimes they don't want to. And if I'm honest, maybe you can relate. There's this knee-jerk reaction sometimes to say, no, you know, don't be shy. This is what we do. Just, you got to get practice and get used to it. Go ahead and pray. Just go, go for it. We're going to wait until you're ready. You know, and I think that that is, isn't just right, you know, because it wouldn't lead them closer to God. It would check off my box of I got my kid to pray today, right? But it wouldn't lead them closer to God. So what I try and do instead in those moments is instead of making them pray, is that I will pray for them, right? I'll say, okay, I will pray. And it's not to shame them, but it's to honestly bless them because I want them to grow in their love for the Lord. And I want them to know how to pray and I want them to uh, just be comfortable talking to the Lord. And so I don't want to make them do it, but I really do honestly want them to. So I pray and I, I thank the Lord for them and I pray that he would continue to bless them and to teach them about who he is and who they are and teach them how to talk to him. And it turns that moment from a moment focused on prayer for the sake of prayer to prayer for a deepening of our relationships with God. So I think we must just constantly be examining our motivations, examining our hearts for our motivations for whatever we're doing, whether it's good or not. We got to check our motivations so we can't be counted with those people that raise our own self-dictated traditions and rules and habits and customs to the level of God's word when they might not be. And if you've done something like that in your life, examine your heart. If you've lifted something high, even if it's a good thing, then either change your motivation if possible or recognize that that thing has become an idol to you and stop doing that thing until you can approach it just as a means of helping you growing closer to Christ and not as the goal itself. And that, I think, brings us to the next natural question, for me at least. It's, okay, well, what is it that God has commanded that I should just do? Right? And for that, we're going to pick up reading in verse 8. It says this. It says, And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. All right, pause right there. Okay, so we see here the second issue with their fasting. And the second issue is that it was an indication that their spirituality was only inwardly focused. They're focused on personal growth, personal piety, which we can say the same thing about a lot of our own Christian practices. You see, the private life of a Christian is very important and it's very good. But God never describes his kingdom in scripture as a kingdom that is full of private practices. 
He never describes it as the kingdom of God is full of fasting and reading devotionals and memorizing scripture as important, as foundational as those things really are. Instead, you see that he quite often describes his kingdom by talking about how people treat one another in it. And if you miss that, then you miss the very heart of Christ for people. You got to remember that the same God that is talking here in Zechariah is the same God that came as Jesus Christ to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. And he says this, he says, you give a tenth of your spices. That's tithing he's talking about. He says, you're great at tithing. You even give a tenth of your mint and your dill and your cumin, even your spices. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So think of the things you do to grow closer to God. Are they all internally focused? Is it only Bible reading and prayer and tithing and church attendance? And those are really good and important. Please do those things. But that's also lopsided. And if that's all it is, then you're going to miss the heart of Christ for people. Now, one pastor I read this week as I, was, as I was preparing, he puts it like this. He said, some among the people of God find it easier to fast a few days a year instead of truly treating others in a godly way. Their bad relationship with others fundamentally demonstrates a bad relationship with the Lord. And I think this is really one of the most common issues that I see among honest Christians that are struggling with their faith. You know, they are so focused on internal spirituality, inward spirituality, that they don't actually make an intentional effort to go and do the things he just actually told us to do. Living the way he actually lived, doing the things he actually did, things like actually sacrificing to help care for kids without good families, actually sacrificing to help take care of elderly people without family around, or taking care of poor people who need help, or finding a way to welcome and serve people from other places into our community, into our our groups, our society, or working for godly justice in our society, not just the worldly justice that people call for and try and talk about, but the justice that God calls for. Being merciful and compassionate towards those who are suffering. And man, we have a lot of suffering people in our culture these days. People that need the true justice that Jesus brings, which starts by actually going out on a limb to actually tell someone about Jesus' love for them. See, these are the spiritual disciplines that describe God's kingdom in Scripture most clearly. But when we neglect them, and we don't do these things that he uses to describe his kingdom, then we end up wondering why our religion isn't working for us. Which is another really common thing we hear is that people say, you know, I, I believe in Jesus. I love God, but that church thing is just not for me, really. It just doesn't work. I don't get it. It's not for me. And I think Jesus would look at those people that struggle with that and say, that's because you think following me is just reading and singing and coffee. And maybe you have heard the good news that he died for you. And maybe you even embraced that at first, but then you didn't know what to do with that. And that's all, that was kind of the end of the road for you. And you fizzled. And the honeymoon period wore off. And you're like, well, what else is there? Is this it? And friends, I think that if that's you, you are both overcomplicating it and dumbing it down at the same time. 
Because it's really clear in Scripture how you can work right alongside Christ. It tells us what he's doing. So go do that. It's very clear on how he can work in you and through you. And you say you don't feel close to God, and so you don't act out of obedience. But Scripture says you don't feel close to God because you don't act out of obedience. You don't know him because you don't follow him. You know, maybe you think about following him. Maybe you really want to follow him, and you prepare to follow him, and you study how to follow him, but you rarely, if ever, actually do the things he's just told us to do, that told us the things he's already doing. You know, if you look at the other side of the coin, you look at the people, even in our own church, I look at the people that I just see look like Jesus to me, right? And you see the Holy Spirit just dripping off their life, and you admire their faith. It's always the people that are telling people that are hurting all about Jesus. You know, I didn't want to be like John Wesley because John Wesley was so good at reading devotionals. You know, that's not what draws you. It's those people that really believe this and are out doing the things Jesus did. It's not the people that are so focused on just just internal, private, spiritual practices, as important as those things are. Now, the other day I was talking to Pastor David about missions work, and he was talking about why he thinks, and I think he's right, about why missions can be such a, such a, like a pivotal point of a Christian's life. And I think it's because these people, for a certain time, have set aside everything else in life and said, I am just going to do what God's called me to do. And that whole time, they are focused on following Christ all day with other Christians. They're not just in the humdrum of suburban life reading another devotional. They are out sharing their faith with people on the street. They are praying in a way that they actually have to depend on the Lord. They're praying for strangers. They are worshiping with one another. They're sacrificing their comfort and their time and their resources. And they really have put God as the primary focus of their entire life during that period. And then it's no wonder why they wind up with such powerful memories of how God worked in their lives during that time. The thing is that we have to remember is that we are already on mission right here, right? You don't have to go to Mozambique to be on mission. The church exists as mission. But you have to choose to embrace that mission. You have to embrace that work. It starts with the small things, okay? Start with something small, small acts of faithful obedience until you learn that He's trustworthy in those small acts of obedience. Start by doing something like instead of picking up that next devotional, go next door and talk to your neighbor and offer to pray for them or walk across the hall at work and, and pray for your coworker. Or instead of joining another ministry team here at church, as much as we would love that, instead of that, commit to babysitting once a week for that friend of yours that really could use some extra support. You know? Instead of starting that next podcast on your drive home today, call your mom. She could really use it. Work to find some outwardly focused spiritual disciplines, Christian habits, practices, as a way to grow to know Christ's heart better. You know, when you do those small faithful acts, it might grow into steps that pull more of your life to be encompassed into his work. Maybe you do end up leaving your business behind and going on the mission field on the other side of the world. Or maybe you go back to seminary to get trained to be a, a full-time vocational pastor, something in ministry. Or maybe you quit your job and you move to a smaller house so you can raise children more intentionally or care for an aging parent more intentionally. Maybe you need to find a way to use your professional skills to serve people in need. Something you gotta, you got to figure that out in your context with the help of your friends and a lot of prayer. But these bigger things often start with smaller steps of faithfulness. 
the bottom line in all this is that when you give your life to God, it should look the way he describes it should look. Okay. Now, if we look back at Zechariah 7, what we're going to see is that the Israelites knew all this. They knew everything I'm telling you. They knew this before the exile. And we're going to see how they responded. So we're going to pick up in verse 11. It says this. It says, But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, said the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land they left behind them was so desolate that no one traveled through it. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. And so here we see the third issue with their fasting. We see that their motivation for fasting was nostalgia. See, they were mourning over what they had lost in the past, the good things they had in the past, instead of repenting of the sin that got them there in the first place. One pastor says it like this. He says, when they should have been repenting of their sin in exile, instead they were responded with empty ceremonies and heartless rituals, heartless, which were nothing more than disobedience in disguise. And I think how often do we come to God not sad about our sin, but just sad about our circumstance? You know, their fasting was more about a petition to get the temple back and get things back to how they were in the good old days and less about repentance and embracing their relationship with God on open and honest grounds. Their hearts were hard, it is said, but your hearts don't get hard like that overnight. Just like small acts of faithfulness build, so do small acts of disobedience. It says that it came after many rejections, that they knew what God wanted, but first they refused to pay attention, and then they turned their backs, and then they covered their ears, and finally their hearts grew hard as stone. It's like someone who's messed up their marriage because they can't stop drinking and they're praying that God would just make things right again in their marriage, but they don't actually want to repent of their drunkenness. And they just want God to make things like old times. Or someone who's asking God to fix their relationship with their parents or maybe their children and, and they're asking God to make it like it used to be, but they don't want to repent of the hurt and pain they brought to the situation. Or it's like someone that's praying for health. God, please make it like when I was young, but they don't actually want to repent of an unhealthy lifestyle they've been abusing their body with for all these years. Or they just want God to make it like it used to be, but they don't want to change things. And for some of you, you believe in Jesus, but you continually reject his call to step out in faith and do his work, to even just try. Beware that you are hardening your hearts. And they are becoming stone day by day until the time comes when you won't hear his voice at all. So instead, listen to his voice. Follow what he says. Even just try to follow. And he will be with you in that. That's where he is. For others of you, you have not yet 
begun to follow him, but you know he's calling you. You hear his voice. And you see that following Jesus is more than just reading and singing songs, even though that's a great part of it. You see there is serious work to be done so we don't leave a world of desolation behind us because of our continued disobedience to him. Join him in his work while you can still hear his call. The book of John says it like this. Jesus says, he says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will just give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answers, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's where it all starts. We cannot be a blessing to the world if we don't first believe. And if you need to do that today, then me and the follow-up team are going to be over here right after I wrap up our service. Listen to his words while you still can before your heart is completely stoned and come and just talk to us and we will help you in that process. All right, let's pray, and then we're going to wrap up our service so we don't get rained on. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that your word goes forward and changes lives all around the world, and I pray that you would do it on this field today right now. I believe that someone is hearing your word right now and needs to give their life to you, and I pray you would give them the courage and the peace to come do that so that their life would be radically changed. Father, I pray that the brothers and sisters here that have trusted you would also trust you each day with every step and that they would follow you and do what you have told us to do because that is the best way. And we just want to glorify you, Father. We thank you. We praise you. We lift you high. Amen. All right. Well, thank you all. Don't get rained on. We're going to let you go. Have a great day. See you next time.